Perikvav. In Perik Hay, we saw how the Koach of Akadosh Baruch Hu attacked the Plishtim when they took the Aron. The Aron is a sort of hot potato, and it has incredible uh, kedusha, which none of these people understand. And I think that one of the themes of what we are seeing in this story is when there's a failure, when there's a failure to recognize kedusha and to give it the proper respect. So the Plishtim take the Aron, chapter five, they take it, there's a tremendous uh, defeat on the Jewish side in chapter four as a result of the sins of the of the sons of Eli and the punishment that God brings upon them and upon all the house of Israel for many, many years of idolatry and disrespect. And um, so chapter four is basically that disaster. They lose the battle and uh, two sons of, of Eli die and then the Aaron is taken and then Eli dies and Mrs. Pinchas dies and you just have this terrible disaster. In chapter five, we go back to the Plishti side and we see what they do with the Aron. And you can argue, if Yochanan and Reish Lakish argue, did they intend to disrespect the Aron or not? And you can say that they did not intend to disrespect it, but because they put it together with their idol, right? And then the idol, the idol is the first thing that God attacks, knocks the idol down, and then it breaks the idol. And in this sort of weird turn of events, the Plishtim attribute more, more kavod, more respect for the idol after this event, these events, which is sort of perhaps a little bit of a, a musr for the Jews. The Jews didn't have respect for the Aron. And, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it situation. And so now the Aron is on the Plishti side. But Hashem sees that they're not getting the message. They're not sending back the Aron. The Aron represents a trophy, a prize, a reason for them to feel proud that they won over the Jews because their God won over the Jewish God. And so they're not willing, they're not willing to back down. They are not willing to back down. It's very painful for them, the thought of giving back the Aron. So first God strikes Ashdod and then Gat, and then Ekron. And the cities are so, um, they're in so much trouble because of the, the, the plague that God sends on them that they're very, very anxious to get rid of the Aron. So first Ashton sends it to Gat, and then Gat sends it to Ekron, and Ekron's just take it away, take it away, take it away. And as the time goes by, the plagues escalate. So what we see in Parakval, screen share. <coughs> um, okay, so we see in Parak Vav, it's pretty much a narrative. I've broken it down a little more than they do. They break it down here just in terms of the action on the Plishti side, and then a little bit on the action on the Jewish side. But I would break it down much more than that. I would say the first nine psukim are, what do we do with this thing? And then the next 
<coughs> excuse me, the next two psukim are the plan executed. And then we switch here in um, Pasuk Yud Gimel to what happens on the other side. We switch back briefly when the Plishtim uh, leave, and then we go back to the Jewish side. So we have a kind of counterpoint of what's going on the Jewish side, what's going on the Plishti side. So the parak starts with this sort of very, uh, oops, one second. And the Ark of God is in the field of the Pushtim for seven months. And we first have to stop and say, what does this pastor come to tell us? What are we supposed to learn? The Ark is in the Pushti land for seven months. So first of all, the Mitsuda Sion says, it just means like in the land of the Pushtim, but it's not so clear. If it's in the land of the Pushtim, then we're saying the total of the time that it's been in captivity is seven months. But it's possible to also say that everything that happened in chapter five, going from God from Ashtar to God to Ekron, that was in the city, so to speak. And now it's actually in the field because they don't know what to do with it. And since later on in this chapter, we find that it's the time of the wheat harvest. So we know that the seven months are ending in sort of uh, early summer, let's say June or July. So the seven months would have been in um, early winter. So it could just be that nothing they could do with it during the wet months. It's possible to theorize all kinds of things. But the Chazal say seven months is a significant number and they go to the Medrash in Bracious Rabbah. And Abraham took sheep and cattle, and he gave it to Abimelech. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what are these seven sheep? The Medrash comes to tell us that a Baruch was not happy with Abraham for making a covenant with Abimelech. So the first question is, well, let's just go back a second. Who is Abimelech? Abimelech is the king of Gerar. And this is probably um, a forerunner of the of Plishtim. They're in that similar category, um, uh, territory, little, maybe a little bit more north. They're also coming over the sea from Greece and like this. But uh, this Abimelech was one king, whereas the Plishtim in the time of Shmuel, the Plishtim have five governors. It's a different system. But you see here that Abraham is happy to make a covenant with them. And Hashem says, why did you do that? It's not something I told you to do. I don't want you to do that. And because Abraham gives seven sheep, and that's we called this was called Beersheba. This is one of the reasons, either, either for the swearing or for the seven sheep. And the, the marriage goes into this whole discussion of 
what was the punishment that Abraham got for making this covenant? And we have to ask ourselves, first of all, what did Abraham do wrong? And it would seem that we have to conclude that making a covenant with these, for example, this non-Jewish king is sort of distancing Abraham from the covenant with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He's also not, um, he's also not doing something that God asked him to do. And later on, in other cases in the Tanakh, we see that making deals with, um, with other non-Jews can have very serious consequences. Yoshua does it with the Givonim, right? David tries to be nice to the king of Ammon. Sometimes these overtures are problematic. So the Medrash goes into all these stories. Says, this is one of the reasons that the Ark was in the fields of the Pushkin for seven months. We can get back to this a little bit later. But it's something to think about. And also we have to think about one other thing, right? What are the Jewish people doing for those seven months? Where are they, you know, spiritually? What's going on? Were they just like, oh, okay. So the Ark of the Pushkin, okay. You know, perhaps they're afraid to, you know, organize a military, uh, you know, they, they just had this massive defeat. But what should they be doing under these circumstances? And this is our first thing that we have to think about. When we're in a state of galut, when we're in a state of din and onesh, probably the first thing we should be doing is saying, you know, how do I fix this? What do I do here? There should be some serious davening, some serious tshuva, some, you know, uh, you know, soul searching. Later on in this parak, we're going to meet the people of Beit Shemesh, and they're just like, you know, Olam Kimin Hagom Noheg. You know, the world is going on. They're reaping their crops, and they're not dealing with the fact that the Aron Elohim is in captivity. So if you can't attack the Philistines militarily to get it back, you can send messages, you can do tshuva, you can beg Hashem for forgiveness, but it's not the people who really were concerned. Somebody is unmuted, so please make sure you're muted because I hear background noises. So the people who are really concerned about the taking of the Aron are dead. Ailey, who could think of nothing else at that moment of taking of the Ark, the wife of Pinchas, who is horrified by this, where are those people who are concerned about the loss of the Aron and we have a problem here? So this Pusik is stating we have a problem and we're gonna see how that, that plays out. We have to think about this. We have to really kind of be attuned to difficulties in the spiritual world. And maybe we can't do any physical action, but we could certainly dive in. We could certainly be concerned about it. You know, I, I refer you to the story. I was talking to my students about it. You know, uh, I find that a fascinating story would happen with angels, right? So this is the latest. Okay, you see the story. This man, Omer Barlev. For those of you who don't know the story, he's a, a left-wing politician and a, uh, well, what shall we say? After not managing to get a good position in the government, he led protests. And one of the protests he led was outside the house of a Gershon Edelstein 
Zecher Tzadok Lebracha. And in an absolutely, I think, in a certain sense, awe-inspiring um, demonstration of Kavona Torah, the grassroots Haredi world said we're not buying angels' bread, and they weren't the only ones. Many, many religious scientists stopped buying angels. And they scoffed at it. The, in that picture, this is the, one of the uh, owners of Angel's Bakery. They are sitting at the Shiva of Rev. Edelstein's, I, I believe these are sons, I can't really see. And they came to apologize after weeks of being boycotted. And I feel that it was a great demonstration of honor of the Torah, right? You cannot protest in front of the house of the Godel Hador, who was a man who always wanted peace, who met the first protest with Rogelach and Cholent, go out and bring them food. You cannot give that, make such a disrespectful demonstration and get away with it. And that was a really, uh, I feel that there was a big Kiddush Hashem to just show them that you can't do this. And they took the opportunity of the Shiva Nebuchadnezzar really, you know, that he passed away a couple of weeks later. They took the opportunity of the Shiva to, to say they were sorry. So I don't know if it's business or not business, but it needed to happen. Okay, we digress. But I, I just want to make the point, one of the things that we take out of Perik Vav is you have to have kavod for things that are b'kedusha. You cannot be cavalier. You cannot be disrespectful. And there is a balance to maintain between loving HaKadosh Baruch Hu, wanting to be close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and being happy, and having the proper respect for holy things. Okay. Seven months have passed. They're fed up already. The roads have dried up. Time to send it away. They, they take two categories of helpers. The Kohanim, those are the ones who deal with the, the holy stuff, right? They're Kilo, they're religious people. And the Kosmim, who the kind of magicians who are supposed to be telling them, you know, like, you know, through their powers what's actually happening. And they have two questions. Now the Malbim and the Barbin will go through this, this story with the question. The, it's very interesting. Question number one is, Mana Hashem. What are we gonna do with the ark? So should we give it back is basically the question or should we not give it back? And this is a very big political question. It's not just a holiness question because giving it back is a statement of uh, submission. And the second question is, tell us how we can send it back. So it's interesting. The second question implies that, yes, what should we do with the ark? We have to send it. And the second question is, how do we send it? So there's two questions here. Should we? And if yes, how? So the question the Malbim analyzes, the first question is, should we or shouldn't we? That's a question to magicians. The magicians should determine, is this God's hand or not? And the second question, how do we do it? That's for the, the holy people, the, the Kohen to decide. And the Malbim theorizes, should we send it on a wagon? Should we carry it? Now, if you recall, in the Chumash, when we talk about carrying the Mishkan, the, the holy vessels were carried on the shoulder. This is something that um, 
we see later in, in Shmuel Bet with, um, with Uzzah, when, when David brings the ark to Shalayim and, and Uzzah dies, one of the problems there is they put it on a wagon. It should be carried on the Katev. Now, the Philistines shouldn't be anywhere near the Aron, so perhaps for them the, uh, the uh, Agalad ark is a better choice. But the answer that they get is surprisingly not really an answer to either their questions, but an answer to a question that they didn't ask. And don't forget, the Plishtim said, Aron Hashem, which is really mercy. What should we do with this Ark of Hashem? And the, uh, the Kohen and the Kosman answer, if you send this Aron of Eloke Israel, the God of Israel, don't send it empty. You must send it back with a guilt offering. Then you will have a refuah. And you will understand, it will be clear to you, why, why wouldn't he take his hand off you? Why wouldn't he stop hurting you? So the, the language here is a little bit difficult, but let's just try to understand what they're being told. They ask, should we send it back? Should we send it back? And if we send it back, how do we send it back? And in the back of everyone's minds, it's really a sort of, it seems to me, Anyway, in my humble opinion, it seems like they all know that it has to be sent back. But they still don't want to admit it. Even back in chapter five, the people of Ekron said, right? They gathered all the Sarnim and they said, send the Ark of God back to his place. It's killing us all. And now, you know, after time has elapsed and they say, what should we do? What should we do? And they said, you know what? You, you have to, Acknowledge the fact that you have been punished. You have to make some sort of offering to prove to Kashbarhu Baruch that you are sorry. You can't just say, okay, take it back. Right? You have to say, we, we made a mistake. You have to do something to, and it's very interesting because um, this is not something they expected. Like, well, well, yeah, but it's like, if you don't do that, then why should God forgive you? But if you do that, if you tashibu, return, if you return, and this has the language of tshuva, if you are sorry, if you return this asham, asham is a guilt offering, milashon ashma, then you will be cured. And then you will know, right? Then you will know, because if, if it's going to be clear, if you give it back and you give back, uh, you know, an offering and an sorry. And it doesn't help, it will be very clear. But it should be that God will forgive you at this point. And so their suggestion is, So, okay, you want us to do an Hashem. What should we give him? I'm sorry. Find it amusing. <laughs> okay, so in the minds of these people who deal with plishti holy stuff, the, the Kohenim and the Kosmin, the magicians, and the, in order to show God that you're sorry, you have to take an image of the plague and create it in gold so that you're giving a, uh, a recognition, a hacker davar. This is what Rashi calls it when it says Asham, right? 
a, a way of showing God, yes, we understand that you are now punishing us for what we did and we're sorry. So the, there are five principal Plishti cities and we should make five golden hemorrhoids and five golden mice. And Radak points out here that this is a proof to the, you know, I, I think I told you this extreme, extremely horrible medrash on this plague. Now, you know, it's Tahorim, you know, our, 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 today in modern Hebrew is called hemorrhoids. And Afalim are a euphemism for that, but it's all, um, it's connected with the rodents, with the mice. And later it says here in Pasuk, in other words, something about those rodents, those mice are destroying the land. Now, Radak says, this is a proof of, what, of the measures. The measure says that these um, mice were attacking them in the outhouses and, 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 and well, it's pretty horrible, like, you know, uh, pulling out pieces of their intestines, really nasty stuff. But the Mashchitimitz Aretz and Pasakei sounds like they're actually were destroying the crops as well. It's just like a plague, you know, it sounds a little bit like, you know, the Pied Piper, you know, they needed, they, they needed something to cure them. And, and of course, there are other theories about what the plague was. Was the plague a, you know, um, boils or, or, you know, what exactly was it? But whatever it was, the shape of the hemorrhoid, which is a little hill, and the shape of a mouse, which is very similar, those shapes are going to be a, a way to show God that you're sorry. And um, yes, it's, it's, it's kind of weird, but, you know, if you're pagan, you probably get it. Anyway, you all have this magepa. Now, that's the, the Plishti cities had all kinds of towns around them, but there were five principal cities. We mentioned them, Ashton, Ashkelon, Aza, Ekron, and Gar. And uh, that each one is going to come forward with the money for a golden mouse and a golden hemorrhoid. How charming. Okay, you'll make these things. And in Pasakei, we find a very, very fascinating comment. Unatatem lelokei Israel kavod. Give the God of Israel, honor. They're still stuck on the way God punished Dagon. And they say, well, God will lighten up. If you remember at the end of Perik, hey, it says, uh, God's hand was heavy. And now they're saying, maybe God will lighten up, right? Give him honor, it's a play on words, kavod and kaved. Maybe he will lighten his hand from on you and on your God and on your land. So there seems to be a, um, uh, a feeling that God is punishing Dagon still and that they have to release Dagon from this curse. And then in Pasuk And now it says, the, the Plishtim are still having this discussion. 
Why should you harden your hearts? Now, it's not actually tahbidu, but tahabdu. Why will you make your hearts hard? And of course, right away, that's a key word. Who do we know in Jewish history made his heart hard? Paro. Paro. And then what happened in the end? Every time Paro hardened his heart, they got another plague. Right? We don't have to go through what Paro and the Egyptians went through because we saw it. The, the, Mitzrayim, the Mitzrayim and Paro hardened their hearts. Hello, isn't it true? says, God mocked them. God made fun of them. He played with them. He mocked them. And they sent them anyway. They didn't get any, you know, uh, any, any profit from being hard-hearted. Why should we be like that? Let's just get it over with. It's actually, to me, a very, very fascinating thing to think about the connection that they make to Mitzrayim. And this happens in Paragdalit as well, when the Jews are making war, and they say to them, when they hear the Aaron is coming, oh, that's the God that attacked Mitzrayim. The entire Sefer of Shoftim has gone through 40 years in the desert, 350 years of Sefer Shoftim. We are coming up on 400 years since Paro was zapped by God. And the impression that it left on the world and on the other nations is so powerful that they're still talking about it 400 years later. To me, this is astounding. And, you know, halabai, that the Jews would have as much honor for Jewish history as the non-Jews. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. Think about that. Think about, like, what kind of, the, it's just amazing, right? And they say, like, Paro hardened his heart. It didn't help him. He just went through more and more. Why should we do that? And it's interesting, and I mentioned to you, I think I mentioned to you last time as well, that the system of government of the Philistines, the five Sarnim, makes it easier for them to do what my kids would call a hitzkapel. <laughs> Literally, the hitzkapel means to fold, right? Right, let's fold. Um, it, it means to give in, to let it go, right? The, it's easier for them. Paro had so much ego invested in fighting his fight with God. These guys are like, you know, each one of them had a fifth of the ego. He said, you know, let's just, let's let it go. However, they're not done with this whole story. And they come up with a plan. Now, the plan, if we look at it, is Pasuk Zion. You'll see a couple of interesting elements here. Vata, Pasuk Zion. I, I hope you could appreciate the fabulous use of language here, the, the alliteration and the, what they call in Hebrew, take, please. Now, a new wagon, and this is all the ions, one new wagon, now, alot is from the same root as oleil, Olel v'yonek, nursing cows. Take nursing cows, asher lo ala alehem ol. I love it. 
did not go up upon them a yoke, more lot of ons. Here's the plan. You're going to take two nursing mothers, two cows that are nursing, right? And these cows never pulled a wagon before. That's not, they are cows for milking. So they're going to take these two cows, they're going to make a new wagon, and they're going to put the cows on. And what are you going to do with the, the calves that are the babies of these cows? You're going to put them in the house. Lock them up in the house. And you will take the Ark of God and you will put it in this wagon and all the golden vessels that you have returning to God as a guilt offering. Put it in a box. Argaz, I don't think it appears anyplace else in the Tanakh. Put it in a box on Argaz. Till today we use that word. Mitzidoks, next to the, uh, the Aron. And you will send it and let it go. Okay, no one is going to be driving this wagon. It's going to be, you know, just let it go. And the, if you examine this story, you see that there's two definite uh, plans that are going on. Let's just do Tet and you know, we'll explain it. Pasuk Tet. They're still not sure. So they say, you know what? We're not going to give the cows any direction. No one's going to drive the cows. We're just going to let it go. Let it go. Right? That song. I love that song. Okay. And you will see if it's going on its border, going up to Beit Shemesh, he, in other words, God did this evil, this great evil to us. And if it doesn't, we'll know it wasn't God's hand. He didn't touch us. No Nagia here. It was just a mikre. It was just a coincidence. Now, if you look at this map here, okay, which is a little bit sideways, you see here the ark started in Shiloh, came to the battlefield of Ebenezer and Afik, went down from there captured to Ashdod, from Ashdod to Gat, from Gat to Ekron, it's been somewhere here, and here's Beit Shemesh. So east of Ekron, the closest Jewish city is Beit Shemesh, so this seems to be some sort of border here. If it goes on its border to Beit Shemesh, right, then we'll know that it's all been God. And if it comes back home, we'll know that it was just a coincidence. How will they know? So they've set up here one final test. The manner of sending back the ark is one final test. They're gonna set up all the, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting my English. All, all the factors that will have it able to go back and they will be calm. In other words, the ark will be in the wagon and all those little golden hemorrhoids and golden mice, which is just so beautiful, all of them will be in a box with the our own. So that if it goes back to the Jews, it's all ready to go back with their guilt offering, right? So we take that ark and the box of golden vessels 
and we put it in a wagon that never did anything before. And we're gonna have two nursing cows pull the wagon. Now, back in the barn are the little calves going, mommy, come back. And you know, the cows wanna go to their babies. So nature is gonna be fighting here with God. In other words, the natural thing for these cows to do not being given any direction, be to turn the ark around and go back to their babies. And the Hazal say more than the calf wants to nurse, the cow wants to uh, give suck to the child. It's very natural for anybody who's been a nursing mother. You know how that feels, really. And you're you're telling the cows to do something that's completely unnatural. So you have here a built-in experiment. The cows are gonna go against their nature and go to Israel, that's the proof. Now, the other side, the flip side of this test is that a lot of this can be interpreted as honor for the ark because these are animals that never did mundane work. This is a new wagon, right? There's something, you know, the, the Asham is there. A lot of what they've done is respectful, but definitely it's their last ditch test of this situation. Okay. Now, Pasuk Yud, Vayasu Anashim came, Vaykush de Parot Alot, Vayasu Magala, Vetbenehem Kalubabayat. And the men did so, and they took the two nursing cows and they tied them up in the wagon or to the wagon, I should say. And their sons, they tied up in the house. Now, Kalu is Milshon Kele, the Aleph is missing, like a, a, locked up, right? And Pasikin Aleph, Yasimu Tarun Hashem Elagala, Betargaz, Betachbereaz, Avetzamei Tcharehim. And they put the Ark of Hashem in the wagon and the box and all the golden mice and the images of the hemorrhoids. Sorry. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. <laughs> Five golden hemorrhoids. It sounds like a Christmas song. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> All right. So it's just so bizarre. And the funny thing is, you know, they they really feel they're giving God honor. Like God really needs golden mice. Like who needs golden mice? <laughs> so strange. Okay. And now we have a pasuk that's just unbelievable. Vayisharna is a strange word. We'll come back to it. Well, let's just go. They, they went straight. The cows went straight. The cows went straight on the path, on the road to Beit Shemesh, on one path they went. Now, anytime you see the haloch, this expression, haloch, is a makor. Grammatically, it's a makor. That means it is a gerund in English. It means it's an ing, going. And usually when you have haloch, there's something. Haloch, the gadel, we said about Shmuel. It means increasingly more so, more and more. Haloch, the means going and lowing which is the expression for the sound that cows make, they're mooing. As they're going, they're mooing. 
right? And on the way, like there's this, you know, the cows are like uh, making these noises. Below Sari of Minasmol, they just directly to Beit Shemesh. And Sarni Plishtim And the Plishti officers were told, you will see, right? We will eat him. You're going to have to follow and see which way they're going. So they're following. Advil Beit Shemesh till the border, they can't go any further. And you're watching. It's, it must have been an astounding thing to see that these cows went completely against their nature, directly do not pass go, do not collect $200 straight to the border of Beit Shemesh. It's astounding. Now, what do we do with the word by Yisharno? So Rashi says, Hare Tebazu androginus. It's androgynous, right? In other words, the yud at the beginning is masculine and the nunhe at the end is feminine. What do we do with that? And Milamed, Sha'af Habladot Hayu Amrim Shira. Roni Roni Hashita. Now, this is a really uh, interesting medrash. Okay, I just want to make sure I have it for you. Oh dear. Uh, okay, Lord Medrash. After all that, we'll get back to that in a minute. Seriously, I open it up, I prepare it, and then I have to go, right? Yeah. Okay, the Gemara states, right, by Yisharna HaParot. What does it mean in the word by Yisharna? Rabbi Yochan says it means they recited a sword. So you can take the word by Yisharna and go, they went Yashar, okay? But it could also mean they sang. So the Gemara says these cows were singing, right? And then it goes into a very fascinating discussion of what they were singing. We don't have time to go into it, but there's some examples here. What did they sing? So here, Amr Biyochanam Mishimr Meir, Sha'amru Shira, Rav Zutra Bartuvi Amar Rav, Sha'yashu Pneim Kenegad Amru Shira. Okay, that's a really, really one that the cows, as they went straight, their heads were turned toward the ark and singing. So this is really wild. And what were they singing? Riochanan says, Az Yashir Moshe. And that's also very poetic because what does it say? Shir Lashem ki And they are haloch for ga'o. So their ga'o is with an I and this is ga'o with an aleph, but you see the connection, right? And then Shir Lashem says, Mizma Shir Lashem Shir Chadash ki Niflos Asa. Wonders that God is doing. Hashem I really actually like that one because the next pasuk is Yoshei Pruvim Tenet Oritz. And that's you know, the Aroni of Shepruvim. Beautiful, beautiful things. Aroni, Roni Hashita, what is this all about? Why are they coming up with song after song that the cows were singing? And it's a crazy kind of miracle because we know how much we get excited when Bilam's donkey talks. And now you have these two cows singing. So just, okay, I just, this is for, this is for you, Rabbits and Ruthie. Remember Elsie the cow? 
Yes, I do. Borden's Elsie the Cow. The singing cow. It's hilarious. Anyway, that's what I always think of with this. So the, the, the point, why is the Midrash going into all this stuff about all the different songs? Right, why, what's going on there with the different songs? Thinking about the cows singing. So, you know, first of all, the cows are now making a massive Kiddush Hashem. A massive Kiddush Hashem. The Plishti Sarnim are watching a miracle and they're following them. They're following, these are the leaders of the Plishtim, the five, they're following these singing cows and the cows are singing praises of God, right? And these, like a lot of beautiful sukkim from, from, um, uh, from Tehillim, which wasn't written yet, but all of this is so amazing. And the Malbim goes into like five miracles, each one of these things. They went to the right road, they went on one path, they were singing, they didn't go to right or left, they pushed them were going after them, and they straight to their border. Unbelievable miracles. God is really showing, you know, this, this tremendous Kiddush uh, Hashem. So the cows are part of it. It's very, very interesting. And now we switch to the little more difficult part of the story. And the people of Shemesh are down in the valley and they lift up their eyes and they see the ark and they're very happy. Okay. And the Agamala comes to the field of somebody named Yeshua, who lives in Beit Shemesh, and stood there. And there's a big, big rock. So they split up the, the Agala and they made a, an altar and they sacrificed the cows at, for an Ola for God. And the Levium take down the ark because you know they're using the wagon for wood, and they take the vessels, the box with the vessels of gold, they put it on this rock, and they make sacrifices to God. Now, <clears throat> at this point. We stop a second to finish off with the Philistines. Those five Philistine governors, they saw. And they went back to their place on that day. They saw their experiment had succeeded. They'd done what they set out to do. The, there's no question. Like, watching those cows do go, go exactly against the nature, go straight to the Jewish territory, and bringing the ark and singing as this tremendous thing, nothing for them to do by a shugu ekromayoma. And now we're going to, you know, we're just going to sign off with the Philistines. And these are the five, you know, uh, golden hemorrhoids one for Ashdod, Each one of these cities gave a golden hemorrhoid. Okay, sorry, I'm just funny. 
Okay, now we'll stop here for a second. The mice, the golden mice, apparently the five Plishti cities, now you have to picture that these were the fortified cities, the ones we just mentioned. But beyond that, there were towns and they're called banot, like daughters. There are very many towns around them. Meir Miftsar, that would be the five principal cities, the fortified cities. But at Kofor Prazi, now Prazi, we have the same expression in the Megillah of Esther, right? Prazi, when you have the uh, Purim, right? In the town that's Prazi, it's an open town, that would be on Yudalit. And a city that has walls, that would be on Tetzvah. So you have a Kofor Prazi means an open village. So beyond the fortified cities and open villages, and the number of golden mice was not five. This is what we're being told here. In other words, it sort of gives you the sense that like, okay, let's say, you know, the main city, the main city, uh, let's call it Tel Aviv. Okay, so Tel Aviv makes a golden mouse. And all the, all the neighborhoods around Tel Aviv, they were where we don't want to be satisfied with the golden mouse of Tel Aviv. So like Ramakan was a golden mouse and, you know, everyone has to, has to, you know, give a golden mouse. So although there were five golden hemorrhoids, there were a lot more golden mice because everybody was freaking out. It's a very interesting thing. And this went as far as and uh, the villages of the Pushkin, as far as this Avel Hagdolah. Now you look at Avel Hagdolah and you say, wait, isn't that supposed to be Evan Hagdolah? The big rock, right? Where they put the ark and the vessels. And we have to stop and say, Avel, that doesn't sound good. Remember the Evan Ha'ezer, where the battle was, the rock of help wasn't exactly helpful to the Jews. And this is not exactly a rock of happiness. This is the rock of mourning. Now, interestingly enough, we finish with the Philistines, they go home, and until they go home, nothing bad happens. This is a tremendous chesed of and a consideration of what Hashem wants the, the non-Jews to see from this story. But the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, we're not finished with the Jews. The Pushtim go home, shalom, we're by Charlie, okay, Pasuk Yitzet. By Yach Ba'anshe Beit Shemesh, Dreadful, right? They just celebrating. The Aaron came back. They're so happy. They take the cows. They make sacrifices. What was wrong? And your test were told God struck the people of Shemesh because they saw in the ark of God, and he struck in the people, 70 men, 50,000 men. And the people mourned because God struck them. Great blow. So we have a problem here because first of all, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why did God do this to them? What was wrong with what they did? So if you're following, right, this text here, it says, Kira Uba Aron Hashem, because they saw, 
And this is be one of the theories, bit iron. They looked inside the arrow. Okay. But the Gemara has, this is the Medrash that I opened that I didn't, did I say it was the wrong one? Okay, Kirabaron, Mishum Dera'u, Vayachalokim. Okay, and here are some of the theories of what they did wrong. Rabbi Abahu, Rabbi Elazar, Chad Amar Kotsvin Mishtachavin, Chad Amar Mile Name Amur. Right, and uh, that's on the next page what they said. Um, okay, the first theory is they were weeping and bowing down. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means that while they were happy to see the ark, they didn't stop what they were doing. You know, you got to bring in the wheat. So they kept on weeping. And this is a great lesson for us because when you're doing something that's big dusha, you should be concentrated on doing something big dusha. You cannot be, you know, checking your email while you're davening, for example. You have to be on point with whatever that holy activity is. That's one thought. They didn't stop weeping, they just kept on going. The next page, okay. Okay, they said, who angered you that you left and who appeased you that you came back? Which sounds like an incredibly chutzpahic thing to say to the ark. Like, hmm, right? What was your problem that you left and now what's your, why did you come back? And we have such a, it's a very, very difficult Answer now. If you go back to that medrash that I showed you in Bracious Raba, here it says, Amar Kaddish Baruch Okay, I'm sorry, go back a bit. Rabbi Yirmiyah, Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Yirmiyah, Rabbi Yirmiyah, Rabbi Yirmiyah, Rabbi Yirmiyah, Lama Laku Anshu Bet Shemesh. The same medrash that talked about that the ark is in seven months in the land of Christian. That it says, like, why were these people punished, right? Because God, Amar Lahem, they were making light of the ark. Amar Kaddish Baruch Hu. Okay, and then it talks about the songs that the that the that the, the cows sang. Okay, going back to our pesukim, right? So, in other words, God is angry with the Jewish people. Said, like, where were you for those seven months? Seven months, you know, if, if your chicken had gone missing, you would have gone from door to door looking for your chicken. But the ark of God is missing for seven months and you're busy with your harvest. Lachem. It's, it's the, there's something here that's very, very difficult. And you go into all the theories, what did they do wrong? They opened the ark, they looked inside the ark, they touched the ark, they shouldn't have touched the ark, they were happy when they saw it, they shouldn't have been happy, they should have been mourning. You could put together all the theories, right? All the theories put together, right? They, they were chutzpahdik, they said, oh, look, the ark is back. Where, where'd it go? Why'd it go? And why'd it come back? Right? And, or, or, or they were just, you know, going about their business while they're, you know, celebrating. It's sort of 
I feel that all the different theories are basically coming to tell us that what was missing here was the respect, the reverence for the ark. And that because that was missing, Hashem punched them. You, you should have been crying when you saw the ark. You should have been mourning while the ark was away. You should have been davening to get the ark back. You shouldn't have been going about your business and, oh, look, the ark is back. Isn't that great? And then you go and touch it and you move it. You had the Levium. Where was, why? The first thing you should do. What are the first thing they do when they take out the vessels, when we move the Mishkan? They cover it. It's carried by the Kohanim. It's not put on a, put on a rock for everyone to stare at. It's kept in the Kodesh Kodeshim. Why would something so holy not be treated with reverence? And here, all bets are off. We just have to recognize that when something is Kedusha, has Kedusha, we must be very, very, very careful. And then there's this strange phrase, God struck 70 men, 50,000 men. Well, is it 70 men? It doesn't say 70 and 50,000. It says 70 men, 50,000 men. Well, what's that about? How do we understand that? So there's a lot of Midrashim on that also, but I think I see that we're out of time. So just very briefly, okay. It's kind of impossible to imagine that there were 50,000 people at Beit Shemesh at that time. Right? Probably today there's 50,000 or more, but at that time. So the Hazal say, right, oh, 70 men that each one was like 50,000 or 50,000 that each one was like the 70 of the Sanhedrin. It's hard to imagine the 50,000. It seems like there's a grisma here. There's a uh, exaggeration. I think we're meant to say that it was a great plague, 70 people, and it was like the, the morning was like 50,000 people. The Barbanel tries to make a challenge here, and he's like, everybody, everybody was killed all the time because of the Aron. It was an add up to 50,000, but then we have to put in some Philistines, so I don't really, I don't really understand that. But the point is, it was a terrible, terrible blow. And the people of Beit Shemesh react a little bit like the people of the Plishtim. We really cannot deal with this. Who can stand? And here you see, I'm not sure if this is positive. I think it's positive. Who can stand before Hashem, the mighty, holy God? And now we've stopped talking about the ark as if the ark is the whole situation. And now we're talking about God. So it could be that this is a good thing to say, we cannot, we cannot stand. We're just not on that level. Who can we send it to? And they sent messengers to the dwellers of Kiryat Yarim saying, the Plishtim returned the Ark of God, come down and bring it up to you. So going back to our little map, Kiryat Yarim is over here. So it's in a more Northern direction. It's more hilly. Today we call it Telstone. And it's on its way back to Shalim. It's not gonna get there for some time, but this is the people of HMSA. say we can't handle it. It's too, too hard for us. And they send it to Kiryat Yarim. And by the way, I saw something very fascinating. Let's see here. 
biblical site tied to the Ark of the Covenant unearthed at a convent in central Israel. Oh, wait, where's that picture? Picture, what did we show you now? This one. Yeah. So apparently at the top of Abu Ghosh, Abu Ghosh are friendly Arabs at very close to Telstone. And at the top there, there's a convent that's called here. Uh, I really love this. Crazy. The 1924 Church of Our Lady of the Ark of the Covenant. So apparently there's a church at the top of the hill there, which with a picture with like a statue of Mary. I haven't seen it, but Abu Ghosh is friendly. So if anyone's up there, they could go, you could go look and you don't have to go into the church. It's like outside, there's a statue of Mary and a statue of the Ark, which is really, really interesting. Okay, so the next step is really in the next parak, but basically the people of Kiryat Yarim are going to take the Ark and they're going to keep it there and they're going to make a special place for it, a special person to take care of it. And it's finally going to get the, the treatment. It returns, it, it, I'm sorry, it's gonna return to the place of respect, of honor that it's supposed to, it's supposed to be getting. It's a very um, great lesson for us about how to treat things of Kedusha. Okay, I'm gonna stop the screen share. Okay, so- Reverend um, Shuret, yeah. I have a question. Is there anywhere in the Gemara that talks about where the Ark is now? I don't know to tell you who talks about it, who doesn't talk about it. I would have to, you know, check with somebody who's oh, a lot better versed in Gemara than I am. But there's definitely a lot of interesting theories about where the Aron mm -hmm. is. The general understanding of Chazal is that the Aron was hidden in the time of Yoshiahu at the end of Malachim Bet, when Yoshiahu was like the last truly Sadiq king. And when he discovered what was going on, he was, um, he consulted the prophetess Hulda, if I'm not mistaken, who told, who told him, this is not 100% in the text, but it's at that point that he hid the Aron. So one theory is that the Aron was never uncovered from that time, and that it is buried somewhere deep below the Temple Mount. The other theory is that the, um, the Romans took it and that it's in the, in the bowels of the Vatican. Those well, are the, like, well, I think those are two of the most common theories, but we really don't know. And it, it wasn't in the second temple. The Ark was not in the second temple. So it's gone missing for a very long time, since the time, uh, since a, a couple of generations before the destruction of the first temple. So where is it? I don't know. Yeah. And the Aron is just this, Aron is this holy, holy object that is just, you know, seems to have been on this journey. And now it's going to be settled in Kirat Ya'arim. And really chapter seven is really a very, very beautiful chapter, the next chapter, where we see that everything the Jewish people have been through together with the ark being in exile and finally in a place where it's respected 
together with the great prophet Shmuel going around and teaching them and, and helping them is going to be a tremendous spiritual revolution in chapter seven and the Jews are going to come back to Hashem. So that's it's a really nice parak. Really nice parak. Before I let you go, ladies, anyone who wants to give a donation. So the uh, campaign has only a couple hours left and I was told to make sure to tell you if you want to give a donation and that the link is in the chat because it's all doubled and matched and everything. And um, yeah, so next week will be Bezrat Hashem, a nice, a really, uh, Herak Zion's a good one. It's a really upbeat, upbeat, really wonderful Herak. All right. Thank you. Thank so you, Mom. More answers for you, Neely. It's one of the great mysteries of the Jewish people. But, it's so sad. <laughs> there's Ratz Hashem when Mashiach comes all things will, mm-hmm. will be uh, revealed all this time what what has Shmuel Hanavi been doing all this time now that's the arc's been gone. a very good question where is Shmuel first of all he doesn't seem to have the authority at the time that they take the ark the battle it's like Ailey's in charge and Hafni and Pinchas are in charge Nobody asks him, he doesn't get involved. And, you know, my sense of it is at this point in time that he's, you know, working, you know, on his Kira movement, doing his, his Chabad stuff. He's uh, connected with people and going around. It's in Perak Zion that you see the cohorts of Kira that come out. And, uh, we bring them out, and uh, great, great results from that. Okay, all right. So we're gonna close it up, and fun, and I'll see you next week. Bye, Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.